I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, genetics and macular degeneration. They have already taken patients who have a certain appearance to their pathologic state, and they say, okay, you know what, I'm going to call this age-related macular degeneration. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Elias Trabulsi declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. In May of 2005, the American Journal of Ophthalmology published a paper by Eric Postel comparing the clinical presentation of two groups of patients with macular degeneration. One group consisted of AMD patients who reported having family members with AMD. The other group of AMD patients reported that they were the sole members of their families with the disease. Dr. Postel's question was this, could these two groups be combined into a single large group for the purpose of future genetic analysis? The nature of this future analysis was not described. After examination of the results of the study, the authors concluded that the two groups were phenotypically similar and, yes, they could be combined for genetic analysis. Case closed. But on second look, the simple question, can we combine these two groups, is not nearly as simple as it sounds. And in taking this second look, we need to confront some important assumptions we make about macular degeneration specifically and about genetic analysis of pathogenesis generally. Example, what if macular degeneration is not a disease? Sounds silly. Well, you wouldn't call conjunctivitis a disease. We wouldn't expect to see a paper on the genetics of conjunctivitis, since conjunctivitis has so many different etiologies. But is AMD that different from conjunctivitis? Maybe it is. We just don't know. Maybe, like conjunctivitis, it is a common manifestation of many disease processes. If that's true, does Dr. Postel's question, can two groups who share the same phenotype have the same genotype, even make sense? To help me sort this all out, I spoke with Elias Trabulsi. He's the director of the Center for Genetic Eye Diseases of the Cole Eye Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He wrote an editorial on Dr. Postel's paper in the same issue of the AJO. I asked him to describe Dr. Postel's study. What Postel et al. wanted to do in their paper uh, was to see if they could use for future studies their singleton patients, which means patients without a family history. Together with their familial cases, they were looking at the clinical manifestations, they were looking at other associated factors, and they wanted to prove that these two groups of patients were similar enough that if you lumped them all together and studied them for an individual variable, you would not be inducing a bias. The issue is is that Postel uh, and his group wanted to perform some studies on patients with um, 
patients with macular degeneration. Right. And what he wanted to do, what he wants to do, what he's planning on doing, mm -hmm. is to do studies on as large a population as he as can. Large as, yes. Not, it's not only a matter of size. It's a matter that if, you, if you're in clinical practice, you're going to see patients without a family history and others with a family history. And how can you be sure that the same factors that are inducing the disease are similar in both? Okay, uh, so the thing is, if, if you manage to prove that these two groups of patients are so similar that you can't put them all together, then you indeed will have a more powerful study, as you said, because you have larger numbers. But at the same time, you could postulate that the underlying risk factors and hence their potential treatment are going to be similar in both groups. What Postel and his group did was that they took one population of patients with macular degeneration, with family members with the pathology, and in the jargon of these sorts of studies, that is called a multiplex patient. It's a patient who has got yes. family members with a pathology. He took a second population of patients in which there was an isolated member with the Correct. pathology, and in the jargon, that is called a singleton patient. Singleton or, or simplex, simplex or, spora or sporadic, you know. That, well, sporadic, yeah, but that, that implies something else. That, 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 that implies um, genetics. And what Postel sought to do was to compare the two populations to show that they're similar so that they could, in a future study, be lumped uh, into one large population where a study could be done. That is, that is correct. Now, what, what are the, the presumptions that Postel makes in doing this? Well, I, I don't think that they are making any, any presumptions, but the, the drawbacks are, are that in isolated cases or sporadic cases, there may indeed be some other family members who are affected that they do not know about. So their assignment into a singleton case category may be inaccurate. So that's the first presumption, if you want to call it a presumption or... Right, that singletons may in fact not be singletons. Right. If you're an only child, you may still have a familial or genetic disease, but you don't have any siblings to show it. Correct. Or, or, or your siblings may have some other factors that would suppress the expression of that gene and or maybe so mildly affected as to never show any signs of it. That is one of the major problems. The other thing is that they have not personally examined all family members of, of the patients that they have included in their studies. As you may imagine, it, it's almost impossible to do that. Most uh, genetic studies that have to do with either linkage analysis or identifying it would go to the extent of bringing in every family member and, and looking at them very carefully and trying uh, to the best of, of the investigator's ability to assign uh, individuals into either affected or not affected, especially if a gene or a disease is highly expressed or is severe enough that you are able to detect manifestations of it. Now, in this case, they may only have one person and then the siblings are not available or they may have several individuals who are affected and they only have examined one and then they rely on a family history. If you want to perform good genetic studies as such, which was not the purpose of the paper in the first place, but it, it was 
the purpose of the studies on the long run, then you would have had to get everybody who's available, give them the best examination and testing that you can to categorize them the best you can. And they that was not done. For the benefit of the listeners, can I get you to describe what a linkage analysis is? Linkage analysis is in a statistical technique that is used to determine the location of a gene in the human genome by showing its linkage or its segregation within a family, within a pedigree, with certain markers of known location. And the best way to, for me to explain that is by giving an example. Uh, let us take a disease A uh, that is clearly genetically determined, that is familial, let us assume it's an autosomal dominant trait when we have a big family and we do not know where that gene locus is. But we know certain sequence variations on the human genome and their locations. We call those markers. For example, marker number 11 is on chromosome number 1 on that particular location. Marker number 65 is on chromosome number 10 at that particular location. And these markers are spread out throughout the human genome at uh, different locations. So what we do is we choose a set of these markers in the human genomes that are spread in such a way that if we can show that a particular marker or a set of markers is segregating within a pedigree with the trait, but not segregating uh, with a normal state for that particular trait that we're looking for, then we know that that gene of interest is located very close to that marker or to that set of markers. Hence, we can determine that the location of that gene is on that particular chromosome in that particular region of that chromosome. The marker is not the same thing as the pathology's gene, but no. the degree to which statistically the marker correlates with the pathology, or, or in this case with the presumption of the uh, gene, the degree to which the two things cor correlate is an indication of the physical distance between yes. the marker and the, and the pathological gene. gene. Yeah. It's not a correlation. It's a co-segregation. Co-segregation, which means they're going together. They're moving together from generation to generation. They're passed on. Throughout the pedigree. Throughout the pedigree, because what happens in, in the normal state is something called a, a recombination. So that if there's a marker at one point and the gene, low, uh, and the gene at another point and they're physically very far apart, then this recombination is very light, which is the separation of the two by exchange of chromosomal material between the two chromatids that are separating in meiosis is very high when the distance is large. But if the distance is very small, if the marker and the gene are so close, then this, this separation, this recombination is going to be almost impossible. And any time the marker goes to the next person, the gene will go to the next person. The mutant gene will go to the next person. And statistically, you can calculate how often that separation occurs and how close those two gene sequences, which is the marker and the gene locus that we are looking for, are associated. There are equations and uh, computer programs that could be used to calculate what is called a LOD score. 
you said that, that the authors didn't presume anything, but I'm going to kind of put this on the table. Okay. In attempting to combine the, the two populations, the singleton or simplex cases and the multiplex cases, the factors that, that unified the two, the things that made the, the two populations look similar, was that these are patients who presented with phenotypes that were similar. And exactly. if a genetic study is going to be done on the combined population, then one presumption that the authors are, are making is, is that similar phenotypes represent similar genotypes. Correct. And I, I also mentioned that in, in my, my editorial. Absolutely right. You cannot assume that if a patient has a certain appearance or a phenotype to their eye, to their retina, to their cornea, that it could only be the result of one particular genetic mutation or one particular uh, defect. What are phenocopies? Phenocopies are traits or, or pathologic conditions that appear to be identical to other conditions that we know are genetically determined. But in fact, these situations or these pathologies have been the result of environmental agents. For example, we know that retinitis pigmentosa can be clearly uh, inherited in, in many different, uh, you know, as a result of, of mutations in many different genes. But you can also have a fundus appearance that looks identical to RP that may be the result of an infection. That is a phenocopy. That is an example of a phenocopy. Or you can have a family uh, with patients that all have what looks like Peter's anomaly, Okay, and that's a genetic trait, or can be a genetic trait. Or you can have a Peters anomaly that is uh, the result of uh, maternal intake of alcohol, and that's a phenocopy. So it's entirely possible that to the extent that some of the singleton cases were in fact singleton cases, that they, they may not have represented the same genotype. Some of them may have, been, may have been phenocopies. Absolutely. Many of them could have been phenocopies. They, they started out, the, the authors started out, not only them, but most people who, who have studied or who have collected uh, patients or families with so-called uh, age-related macular degeneration have relied very heavily on the appearance of the retina, the presence of a certain number of drusen. Uh, they have uh, relied very heavily, and in my opinion, not necessarily a good thing, on, on the, the, the classification of, of age-related macular degeneration that was set forth in 1995 based predominantly on the appearance of the retina. And that classification was, I, I believe, geared mostly towards the identification of patients who may or may not need treatment and to set guidelines for follow-up and, and to set kind of stages or grades that could be useful in clinical trials. So when, when, you, when you want to study other uh, aspects of, of, a, of a disease such as AMD, especially genetic ones, you, you may need to take another look at things. But this, despite those drawbacks, I, I think there were some very interesting points that, that emerged f from, from that study. The authors could look at subpopulations within their patients that may have more 
of a genetic influence to their disease than others. What are the findings uh, with some of these patients that more strongly suggest that well, it's what, a what, genetic... What, what I thought would be more suggestive of a genetic component uh, were those patients who had a diffuse, more, more peripheral drusen than, than those who only had drusen in the macula. The, the reason I, I mention that is that if we assume that there is an, an underlying genetic defect, that underlying genetic defect would be uh, more likely to affect all of, of the cell population in the retina and not selectively the macular cellular population. There, therefore, those patients are going to be more likely uh, to have a, an underlying genetic etiology because the, the disease is more diffuse. So rather than uh, looking at severity of, of uh, the phenotype as far as how many drusen or how large they are or whether they have uh, uh, wet AMD or neovascularization as being a sign of, of severity or as a sign of a probable genetic underlying etiology, one can look at the diffuseness of the disease as a sign of genetic uh, etiology. The other thing is the age of the patients. When Postel compared the multiplex um, cases to the singleton cases... They found them to be younger. Yeah, the, right. There were two findings that, that they made that were much more prevalent in the multiplex families than in the in the multiplex cases than in the singleton cases. One was the presence of extrafovial drusen, and the second was that the multiplex families uh, uh, cases were substantially right. younger than the than the singleton cases. And you were pointing to to these factors as suggesting that maybe the multiplex. Uh, cases really were different, and maybe they really did have a, um, or at least some of them had a real genetic component to this all. There, there's there's another point that that you make in your editorial that I think is an an important point that that I'd like mm-hmm. you to talk about a little bit, and it's important to to much more than than just this study. And I'm I'm going to spell it out a little bit differently from the way that you did in the paper, and it's this. There are some pathologies that we understand what the pathophysiology and what the pathogenesis is, and there are other pathologies, particularly macular degeneration, where the pathogenesis is not understood completely, and in fact may be variable and may even be a final common pathway of of several different Mm -hmm. pathogenesis. And the way that we define this pathology, the way that we say that someone has got macular degeneration or, or, or uh, not, is if the patient has a certain constellation right. of findings. You know, if the patient has these findings, then we call it macular degeneration. If the patient does not have this constellation of findings, then, mm-hmm. then, we, then we call it something else. Now, if you're already defining a pathology mm-hmm. by its findings then you can't then go and say, well, these different right. populations, all of whom had this pathology, look, they had phenotypes that are similar. You can't say that because you've defined the pathology Very by the phenotype true. in the first place. From the outset, you know, you, you have, or, or, or Postel et al., or whoever is, study, is going to study these patients, at the outset, 
they have already taken patients who have a certain appearance to their pathologic state, and they say, okay, you know what, I'm going to call this age-related macular degeneration because these patients are older, because they have macular degeneration. And that by itself, calling a, a disease that may be a final common pathway appearance of many, many disorders by a descriptive name makes sense maybe from a practical therapeutic perspective. And I think up to recently, I, I want to say up to the early 90s, that was the main impetus, the main concern, was to be able to classify these patients in such a way that you can, number one, counsel the patients uh, about what they have, what they may expect, and number two, in such a way that you can Say after doing your case controlled studies and uh, all these uh, treatment trials that that went on and and continue to go on now, where either using laser or a PDT or a vitamin supplementation, you name it, all all those therapies with age related macular degeneration, they have to rely on identifying individuals with a certain appearance to their retina. If you start from that point, you're actually disregarding, in a way, the possible, uh, the multitude of possible underlying etiologies and, and focusing more on the end outcome, irrespective of whether the patient has a predominant genetic uh, etiology or a predominant environmental etiology. They, they all eventually will, will have what, what looks like macular degeneration or age-related macular degeneration. I think if we, we take the two observations of Postel et al. about their multiplex as opposed to their singleton cases. Let's go back to their singleton patients alone and take out of that group of patients those with extra foveal drusen, with peripheral drusen, who are younger than, I don't know, 40 or 50. Those are the patients who are more likely going to have an underlying genetic etiology, in my opinion. If I take only those patients and out of the multiplex ones, I take the same population of patients. Maybe if several groups were to get together and identify those patients, they will have a little bit more homogeneous group to work with. Whereas if you only take those who, have, uh, who are much older, who have known exposure by history to a variety of things, I don't know, smoking, hypertension, uh, UV light, uh, malnutrition, you name it. A, a number of varieties, then that will constitute another more homogeneous group to work with. And then if you want to, uh, to study individual possible genetic either loci, if you want to use SIP uh, pair analysis or, or linkage analysis, then you, you are more likely to be successful. Or if you want to study the effect of uh, environmental agents or vitamin supplements, or protective, other types of protective measures. And if you take that group of patients that has the more likely not genetically determined or, or uh, predominantly genetically determined AMD, then you are more likely to show an effect. The, the importance of, of this remark is in, lies in the fact that for many of these studies to show an effect, not only do you need many, many years, but you also need thousands of patients you need a very large number of cases to show a so-called statistically significant effect.
So I think that would be one way of maximizing the efficiency of studies in, in trying to identify subgroups of patients who are more likely to have more of a genetic component to their disease from those who have more of a probable environmental etiology to their disease. Now, in, in the final analysis, if we are going to think about treatment, or one approach to treatment, could be geared towards the final common pathway to cell death and to retinal degeneration. You can, you can kind of target that final common pathway and see if you can block it one way or the other, irrespective irrespective of what is causing the disease, irrespective of whether it's a genetic mutation, it's a combination of a genetic mutation and environmental agent, or a combination of a complement factor H mutation and an environmental agent. If we can identify the two, three steps in that common final pathway that is going to lead to the retinal degeneration and block them, uh, one way or the other, prolong the survival of these cells, restore some functionality to these cells, eliminate, uh, I don't know, toxic byproducts that may be poisoning them, one way or the other, then we would be able to develop therapies that could be more generalizable. And I think the reason uh, the ARIDS study was successful in, in showing, at least to some extent, that zinc, for example, was, was protective and maybe decreased the risk of, of you know, fast progression of macular degeneration by, I can't remember, 25% or so, is that that particular treatment is in one of those final common pathway steps of cell injury and, and prevents it. And there must be a, a multitude of reactions and, and, and cellular processes that take place in, in that whole apoptotic mechanism that leads to cell death. Everything that has been discovered so far fits very well within this scheme, including the recent discoveries of uh, complement uh, factor H mutation and its role in macular degeneration. So to go back to, to your comment about everything may or, or the retina may look the same irrespective of the underlying etiology and how that could induce a bias, yes, it can if you are going to study particular genetic mechanisms. But at the same time, when you use a, an approach like this, it may be helpful from a therapeutic perspective or it may be helpful in, in identifying common underlying mechanisms or, or common genetic mutations that by themselves may not give you a familial instance of AMD, but would give you AMD as such. And that, that is the case with the complement factor H mutations. They, they, they may be present in, against the background of uh, familial AMD or in patients who have a sporadic singleton AMD, and these patients may either be identical in appearance or may have extremely variable appearance. Most of these authors and, and, and researchers have kind of pre-selected their patients as those having the more severe, in their opinion, severe phenotype or, or higher grade phenotype because they are more certain of their diagnosis when they see certain changes 
and they can attribute them to a certain level of injury that has already happened. Uh, whereas if they only see a couple of drusen here or there, how do we know that this is just not a variant of normal or you know, a, a, a slight uh, change that is really insignificant? So they, they, they had to err on, on the side of using those patients, irrespective of the drawbacks that go along with it that uh, we've discussed so far. Your point's well well taken, that patients walk into the office with a phenotype, right. not with a pedigree. And those are the people that we, those are the patients that we have to find, you know, a way of, of helping, of, of finding a, a therapy. In a way, at this point in time, a quick fix until we can go to more of a breakdown of, of the underlying uh, causes and selective therapies for individual subgroups. You've just answered what I was I was going to ask next, which is what sorts of studies would this sort of combination that Postel is describing be valid for? And the answer is that they would be valid for therapeutic studies since the combined populations represent what we see clinically Absolutely. in the office. But they would n- they would not be valid to combine for for genetic to, studies well probably for for pathogenic studies uh since the 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 pathogenesis that arrive at this at this phenotype yeah, may they be, they may, may be, be valid for selected uh genetic studies for example if they had you if they use the same population and they now take all their patients and screen them for the complement factor h mutation you know the common one the tyrosine the, these are the uh, three from papers from, from science. Nature Science. Yeah. Well, it, it, what, <laughs> this was really a very interesting story, and it, it, has, it has taken so much work uh, on, on uh, the part of these uh, three groups, and there were other groups that were very close by the time these papers uh, appeared, and they did not have the chance to publish their papers together with these. But it took them a lot of work, to uh, to find uh, you know to 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 that discovery, their foundation the foundation of their studies was the fact that in clear cut familial cases of AMD, as well as in sib pair analysis type of studies, there are several genetic loci for AMD that were suggested, including one on chromosome one. And then they they decided that we, they were going to look more carefully at that chromosome one locus and see if they could identify uh, the gene uh, in there that was associated with uh, with AMD. What has helped them tremendously was the technology and the availability of what are called SNPs in in that region. And these are just single nucleotide variations from individual to individual and if you if you use these variations uh, in in DNA sequence you can just like the other polymorphisms we talked about before in linkage analysis you can see if some of these can uh, go hand in hand with a certain trait and if they do then you know that that disease is associated with a gene that is in the location of that SNP. And that's what all three studies have done. They honed down on the complement factor H gene using SNP analysis. They, they relied on some databases 
from Europe and from the U.S. That uh, that and I think from the Far East, if I'm not mistaken, from Japan, that that had collections of these SNPs, and it took them a lot of work and hundreds of patients to finally show that yes, patients with AMD have this one particular mutation in the complex factor H gene that seems to predispose them very strongly, and again, that was a statistical type of analysis, to developing uh, macular degeneration. And they go on to explain how mechanistically or pathophysiologically it makes sense that a disruption of the function of complement factor H would lead to macular degeneration. Let me explain to you how I understand this to be, and I hope I don't make any mistakes here. But my understanding is that uh, this complement factor H is made of a series of repeats, at a series of about 20 sequence uh, repeats. And in one of them, I think it's short consensus repeat number seven, there's a variation. There's a conserved tyrosine, which is a neutral amino acid that is mutated or, or is changed to a, a positively charged histidine in that, in that part of, of the protein. And then when that part of the protein is altered, it's binding to heparin and C-reactive protein changes. And when it cannot bind C-reactive protein the way it's supposed to, then complement is activated. And when complement is activated, that leads to increased inflammation. And when you have increased inflammation, you have disruption of, uh, of blood vessels and uh, leakage from blood vessel walls and other events there that may lead to cell death and geographic atrophy. And they've shown that this appears to happen right in the outer retinal layers and one of the three papers also shows some uh, histopathologic evidence of, uh, uh, of complement factor H being involved uh, in the retina. Now, this, this is a final proof of what had been suspected before, although it's, it sounds like it's something novel, and, and it is uh, in a way novel because it, it just proves uh, suspicions from before that there were elevated levels of uh, C-reactive protein P in, in, in patients with AMD, that there were uh, histopathologic evidence of inflammation in some patients, uh, the presence of complement factor H in Drusen, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this was, in a way, uh, not a huge surprise, but certainly a proof that there is a, a process there that is modulated both by, by genes, in this case, complement factor H, and by environmental agents that would influence th those parts of that cascade there that, that is a combination of inflammation and, and other effects of environmental agents like smoking and light and, and uh, deficiencies in, in certain uh, supplements, etc. All those modulate that cascade there that uh, needs a very balanced homeostasis to keep the retina or the macula functioning the way it should be and the blood vessels and the circulation in that part of the eye uh, normal. In any event, 
uh, it turns out that this complement factor H is a major, uh, this, this mutation or this uh, very, uh, I, I shouldn't say mutation, this change, this uh, variant in, in the sequence in complement factor H, uh, it plays a major role in, in, in the predisposition to uh, AMD. To attribute a particular genetic disease to a mutation in a gene and say that this is the cause of the disease, there are several requirements. One is you have to take a large pedigree, show that the mutation is only present in those who have the disease and is absent in all those who don't have the disease within that pedigree. That's requirement number one. Requirement number two, you have to be able to take a, a large number of normals, normal controls, and show that none of them have that particular mutation. And this is certainly not the case with complement factor H, uh, this particular complement factor H sequence variation, because they have found it in the normal general population. At the same time, you, one may say, well, you know what, these are people who at some point will have macular degeneration or may not have developed macular degeneration yet, but they will, et cetera, et cetera. So th this case is, is going to be difficult to make and to show that this is by itself a cause of AMD. It, it just joins the ranks of all the other risk factors, except that this is a very strong risk factor. It's probably the strongest uh, that, that has been identified to date. Thank you very much, Elias. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. Elias Trubulsi is head of pediatric ophthalmology and director of the Center for Genetic Eye Diseases of the Cole Eye Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He's also the director of the Ophthalmology Residency Program and chairman of graduate medical education at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. His editorial, The Challenges and Surprises of Studying the Genetics of Age-Related Macular Degeneration, appeared in the May 2005 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. We also discussed comparing age-related macular degeneration phenotype in probands from singleton and multiplex families by Eric A. Postel and colleagues, also published in the May 2005 American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Trubulsi or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.